Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, today I'm joined by David Newman, who's the Chief Investment Officer and uh, the Head of Global High Yield at Allianz Global Investors. Welcome, David. Hi. One of the biggest things that come to mind is you know, the, the current COVID-19 situation and its impact on markets. You know, We've got a situation where um, large parts of the economy are, are really under stress um, and we're seeing traditionally investment grade companies you know, starting to trade as as non-investment grade, um, and you know some of the non-investment grades trading like investment grades as they seem to be receiving some of the support from from central banks. And I guess I wanted to get your your take on really what's going on here, um, and how should investors try to think about you know the risk that underlies a lot of these investments. So, what we're seeing obviously is that COVID nineteen has accelerated a credit cycle that was already deteriorating. Um, If you just scoot back to maybe January this year, it seems like a very long time ago now, um, people were working out whether the recession would be at the end of 2020 or in 2021. So we were already thinking about potentially a recession. Uh, The question was when. Um, The other thing which people have been fretting about Um, in 2019 um, was very much um, fallen angels um, in the investment grade world. We'd seen that as a result of quantitative easing and a lot of cheap money, um, investment grade companies especially had been using this as an opportunity to buy back debt or make, um, to buy back equity or make expensive acquisitions, increase leverage. And the leverage in the triple B world was actually more than the leverage in the double B world, which didn't really make sense, but maybe pertains to your question, why do some triple Bs trade wider than double Bs? Simply, they are more levered. Uh, The rating agencies in 2019, because they didn't know when the next recession was going to be, said, we'll give these guys a year to fix themselves. And after the panic of fallen angels at the beginning of 2019, effectively that went away. They all normalized in credit spreads again and everything was sweet. Fast forward to mid-February this year, um, and suddenly GDP is gonna be a lot lower in 2020 than anybody expected. And of course, some of these people who didn't expect it were the rating agencies who said, fine, we're gonna give these over-levered companies some headroom to go and fix themselves. Now that headroom's gone away. And that's really what started this whole fallen angel cycle. Companies which had behaved badly beforehand have now had their rope removed and some of them are going to get downgraded because of over leverage and simply because the cycle is slowing down and they will not grow into their capital structures. But there is also a second wave of issue which you have to think about and that is what has COVID-19 done to the global economy going forward. And I don't mean GDP here, but in terms of how we behave in the global economy. Does it mean that we are going to think about 
more localized supply chains rather than the globalized supply chains? Does it mean that we're going to think about stronger borders rather than looser borders? Does it mean that we're going to travel less? Or does it mean we're going to congregate less in large venues? Um, and that really is more of a structural change, which could happen as a result of COVID-19 as well. So central to thinking about how we look at fallen angels um, and whether they are in fact going to return back to investment grade later on or whether they are default candidates is thinking very much about whether they have been downgraded due to cyclical reasons or structural reasons. And to your point, well, why are some triple Bs trading wider than double Bs? Because there are some triple B companies which people still think have got structural issues and are over-levered and are in fact in a worse position to deal with COVID-19 than some double B companies, which are non-cyclical and have got modest leverage, but are double B because they are small or in a single industry or in a single jurisdiction, which typically makes it hard for those companies to be investment grade anyway. Hopefully that gives you mm -hmm. sort of a bit of a background there. But I, I guess, you know, for, for a lot of the pension funds and particularly in Australia, the superannuation funds, they've, they've got a, you know, they've got investment governance that they need to follow and, and they need to then reconsider well, where does a triple B versus a double B sit in their portfolio. I guess it becomes really challenging for them as they start to look at some of these triple B and say, well, really, should I be classifying these as investment grade um, and investing in them? Or should I be putting it in a different bucket and be investing in more of these double Bs, which seem to offer a much better return. Yeah, and I think that's something which has been debated, not just in Australia, but um, across the world, is you know many investment grade portfolios do have buckets for high yield, although typically the managers don't like using them. Um, but I do think there is a different skill set in, in analyzing a high yield company versus an investment grade company because investment grade companies typically have a lot of levers which they can go and pull um, to, to keep them solvent. They can cut dividends, they can cut capex, they have multiple sources of financing, etc. But when you get to high yield, it becomes harder to finance. Um, the relationship with the investor community moves from being equity-centric in, in investment grade to debt-centric in high yield. And management teams have to go and actually realize that. Again, that's a factor which we look at a lot. Um, the ways that companies can start to save themselves is by rescue financing. We've seen a number of these type of deals within, say, the cruise line industry, where there have been super senior deals based um, on security of various ships. We've seen the same in the airline industry, both with deals doing very well based on landing slots and deals doing less well based on very old fleet, and which in fact couldn't actually get transacted. And I do think that in high yield, people spend more time thinking about um, collateral, the ability to layer um, short-term liquidity triggers. And the biggest trend we've seen is that investment grade managers have actually transferred some of their foreign angel holdings or potential foreign angel holdings to high yield managers um, um, by moving assets across in, in mandates. 
because I do think there is a different skill set there. More specifically on some of the sectors that have been very much affected, you mentioned the um, cruise liners and and, um, the... uh, the plane sector and, and obviously other sectors being being oil. Um, oil was always seen as a as a place of return and yield, um, and you know a lot of a lot of super funds have sort of looked at these sorts of uh, investments predominantly from an equity side, but 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 still the the uh, the high yield that was there was always very attractive. Um, I guess I'm curious in terms of. You're thinking, you know, is this is this potentially buying a fallen angel, or as you sometimes have described it, as a falling knife, where it's going to be really hard for these guys to turn around? Maybe if you could give a bit of a background um, on, on what a falling knife is for you. Yeah, I mean, oil and energy. Well, first of all, let's do energy. Let's just do energy first, and I'll sort of run through some other things which I think are fallen knives. Um, so, energy has been one of these big conundrums because. It's a large part of a high-yield benchmark. It's actually a large part of an investment-grade benchmark. Um, it is primarily shale um, in the bond markets. Um, not, not entirely, but primarily. And shale is a medium-price um, oil product, which by that I mean that shale companies are profitable in a range now of between $25 and $55 um, for WDTI on a fully levered basis. That means including their capex and their their interest costs. So with WTI, you know, stubbornly at the lower levels or below that level, a lot of those businesses longer term are not sustainable. So the easy answer is to say, well, as a result of COVID, those businesses are in structural decline. That would be the easy answer. But there are other forces at work. Um, as As you know, the oil price is manipulated, if that's maybe too strong a word, by OPEC with an agreement of its members, uh, but also subject to price wars, especially as we've seen between Russia and Saudi Arabia recently. So there are political things moving there which could dramatically move the oil price. And remember, the oil price moved as much due to what was going on with the price war as it did with COVID. So yes, absolutely, lower demand, lower global growth will lower the oil price. But if you cut supply, the oil price will go up. Um, the other thing I think you have to think about in oil is that the US has wanted to be energy independent um, over a number of governments, not just the current Republican regime. And if you allowed mass defaults in the shale sector, you would actually lose that energy independence which people wanted. So Trump has said that there will be some support to the oil industry. He has not said what yet. So I think there will be another cleansing of the energy industry. Uh, in the same way as we saw in 2015, that the highest cost, least efficient producers will be allowed to default. 
But I don't think the whole industry goes, although the math was telling you right now that it should. So I think what you do need to do is find businesses which have got low cost bases, strong reserves, decent distribution, um, and financial flexibility to go and move um, through a low price environment. So that's my sort of thoughts on energy. I think you'd be, I think it's dangerous to totally avoid the sector here. I think you just need to find the better in class um, names within the industry. So in terms of fallen knives, um, so we've alluded to some of the factors which you know come into being a fallen knife, but it's not just, it's the first thing is that they are businesses which are in structural decline. So give you some examples. I mean, when was the last time, Alex, you used yellow pages, right? Jeez, <laughs> oh, okay. 10 years ago, probably. They used to be one of the largest issuers in the high-yield market, yellow, yellow mm -hmm. page business, because they were regarded as stable. Um, how many paper published brochures do you use for this conference? Uh, none now. We're, we're fully digital, so another one. Okay. <laughs> so paper printing is another area, for example, where you are in structural decline, you, you've already been in structural decline. So that's already in the price, we already know about that. So now we have to start to think about which other industries may be in structural decline going forward. Um, I've quite enjoyed sitting at home, working on my screens, not having to commute every day. So commercial real estate in city centers, potentially, is that gonna be in decline? Are people gonna think twice about taking the third or fourth flight on holiday or go to a business meeting, um, flying from London to Australia to go and do a conference like this when it's working as well this way. So I think things like travel and the amount of travel um, will change in a way. I think there will be changes to some of the hospitality industries. So that's the first thing. So some of these sectors away from, we mentioned, airlines, cruise liners, you've got to think about casinos, you've got to think maybe about hotels. And I think you do have to think about real estate as well. So there, there are a number of industries which potentially are in structural decline or could be in structural decline. So they're the ones which people are going to, going to be slightly less happy to go and lend to. So that being able to lend to is really quite an important point. Because the next thing we look at when we're trying to work out whether a company is a fallen angel or a fallen knife is one, how much debt does it need to borrow over the next couple of years? I mean, we have no idea when this is over. I think it's pretty safe to say that for the next 12 to 18 months, uh, economic growth will not be at the level it, it was last year. And therefore, on a very low economic growth base, can these companies... Um, do they have the liquidity to see themselves through? Or do they have to keep borrowing? Because if they have to keep borrowing, they will be at the whim of the market, whether the market's open or closed, and the market will be asking for much higher interest rates than they would have been seeing some time ago. You know, we've just seen companies in the cruise sector who were investment grade in January borrowing at 12 or 13% now on a secured basis, just to give you an idea about how that financing cost goes. And clearly that eats into your cash flow a lot. So fallen knives typically have 
much more front-loaded debt. Um, a good ratio which we look at is the percentage of short-term debt to total debt and also short-term debt to enterprise value. Next thing which we also look at is the flexibility of the cost base. So when I said levers, in investment grade, you can stop paying dividends, but assuming you've already done that, that's not enough. Can you actually um, reduce your cost base? Um, it sounds heartless, but can you reduce staffing levels? Can you turn off various supplies? Or are you actually in, a, in an industry where you can't change your cost base? I mean, the, the most extreme would be something like a nuclear power reactor where clearly you can't just turn it off. So that fixed cost is there all the time. If you're a team of management consultants, you can furlough or let people go on the other way so you have a much more flexible cost base. So you have to start to look at that cost base because that will, in, because that will impact your cash flow and your need for debt over the next few, few years. So that is something we spend a lot of time on. And then ES and G are actually very important. It's not just... Um, a trendy buzz, buzzword or buzz letters. Um, if I'm thinking about where I'm going to lend my scarce resources, do I want to be lending to companies which have got unknown environmental or litigation costs? So the money which I'm lending them could actually go to a bunch of lawyers or claimants rather than to pay me back, which is what a fixed income instrument is meant to be. Do I want to be in a business similarly, which is good, got social grievance or grievances against it. And finally, again, I mentioned that management point. Um, had the management team drunk the Kool-Aid and actually realized what's going on so they can actually use our money to improve the business or will they actually use that money for something stupid like still paying dividends? And we have seen a number of so-called fallen angels still saying they want to continue to go and pay their dividends. So... Why should I, as a debt holder, rescue a company so they can pay a shareholder? So I think that's the real difference between a fallen angel and a fallen knight. Mm -hmm. well, look, I think one of the interesting things you talked about there is is the the difficulty with actually allocating scarce resources. Right there, there isn't there isn't an unlimited supply of of capital, and it's quite interesting because you mentioned some of the very high um, coupon rates that are being being uh, you know, put against some of the cruise liners. I think there was a, a deal earlier this week or late last week that fell through with United um, in trying to get away with, I think, 12 or 14% yield, uh, and they couldn't get it away. So it's it's really quite an interesting situation where, and on one hand, you've got a lot of central bank support um, you know, for some of these assets, uh, you know, and, and sometimes in the investment grade and sometimes in the sub-investment grade, but then when the market actually does its thing, and you move away from the moral hazard from central banks, there seems to be some really interesting uh, results where risk is out there and, and you need to be very careful. So I was curious to get your thoughts on sort of the moral hazard that's coming out from, from some of the central banks like the Fed and the ECB. Um, and then how do you invest in this sort of environment where you can get almost tricked because the, the Fed and ECB are supporting potential assets um, you know, maybe temporarily as providing liquidity, but they're not really addressing the solvency problems that still are out there. Well, I think you used my catchphrase there. That, I mean, absolutely, you're right. Um, central banks are providing liquidity, but not solvency. So that is 
where your sort of moral hazard is. You don't want to fight the Fed, but the Fed may, may actually stop fighting um, at some stage in the future. So I think what you need to do is start to think about what the Fed and the, and the European Central Bank and other banks have decided to do. The first thing they want to do is to basically protect large businesses which get downgraded because of the slowdown in the economy due to central bank or government actions to control COVID-19. So these are companies which are marginally impaired, so that they are seeing a slowdown in their business. They are not businesses which are potentially um, structurally impaired. So this is where why I've really tried to draw that line between fallen angels and fallen lives, because while short term, the Fed and the ECB potentially could support both types of credits, the central bank backing or primary and secondary market purchase programs stops below double B. So with a structurally impaired business, which is also seeing a cyclical downturn, it is likely that they will have more than one notch downgrade. And if you follow what the agencies have done and actually are doing, is that they typically downgrade more than once. Um, it doesn't look good to say that I'm providing a through the rating cycle and then suddenly downgrade by five not uh, through the sorry through the cycle rating, um, and then downgrade by five by five notches. It sounds it looks a lot better each time they get new information and therefore decide to redo their models. So companies which could be eligible for the central bank purchase program could lose their eligibility. So you cannot just buy everything. You have this is you have to be very careful and think about what you are buying and how, how far you're going to buy. Second thing which is interesting is that at least the Fed has got a total cap of about 11 billion, um, depending on the size of the company, um, of what they will purchase. And many of the larger fallen angels have got several times that amount of debt. So that will not all be absorbed into the high yield market because the Triple B market is roughly five times the size of a the whole high yield market. So a large bond issue in the high yield market might be 10 billion. Imagine a 50 billion um, triple B company. The Fed buys 11, 11 billion. That still leaves you 39 billion to be absorbed in a market which is more used to things with the 10 billion or below. So that still leads to a price dislocation. And that, that provides quite an interesting opportunity because as there are more sellers than buyers, the buyers will be um, cautious with their scarce resource and they will decide that they'll only buy something at a cheap level because why should they buy an overweight or large position? One, when they, when they may not have followed the name previously or they also know that they're going to be other large names in the sector um, maybe being downgraded in the future. So that does provide a good opportunity because that dislocation is often temporary. It takes maybe three to 12 months, depending on the size of the issuer and the number of foreign angels, for those prices to normalize to the credit rating and sector ratings, um, which was seen in a higher market beforehand. So if you can take advantage of that dislocation and avoid the foreign angel, uh, the foreign knives, 
that's one of the reasons why fallen angels can actually provide very good returns versus standard high yield bonds. And in fact, if you have to look at the whole universe of fallen angels, just a benchmark, um, our analysis showed that there's a slightly better uh, potential for these names to return to investment grade than similarly rated uh, companies which were never investment grade. And there's no worse downgrade risk. And that's just on the index. So then if you try to avoid that downgrade risk by the obvious fallen knives, um, you can get very good returns within, within the fallen angel universe. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get your thoughts, and, and maybe this is not directly to, to your wheelhouse, and, and that is sort of the reference to, to where, we, where we sit from an equity market point of view, and things seem to be you know, back back to normal on the equity market point of view. And if we do see another sell-off in the equity market, is that likely to have a another ripple effect through through the debt markets? I'm curious on, on your thoughts there. So these are my personal views and nothing to do with the firm because I'm not an equity spokesperson. But it seems to me that an equity price is meant to be a, a discounted value of future cash flows. Um, future cash flows due to COVID and the, and, the, and the impact will be lower than people expected in January. That's a fact. Um, yet the level of the equity market is, all, is almost at the same level as it was beforehand. So there seems to be a disconnect there that equity does seem to be more optimistic than maybe those people in the debt market. So are still pricing in, even now, post the rally, nearly an 8% default rate. Um, so it does seem that there is an issue there. So the analysis which we have done, because clearly um, I need to work out what sort of risk and input in the portfolios, is in downturns, there is about a 65% correlation between the movement of equity and the movement of high-yield spreads. And that's a positive correlation. So equity goes down, high-yield spreads go wide. Um, so within our high-yield portfolios, we, we um, and also our multi-asset credit portfolios, we actually do employ equity hedges um, to protect us on, from some of that downside. Um, so to your point, if I do think that equities look overvalued, um, high-yield will also sell off, but it will sell off less. And then there is also a bit of maths which protects you. So if you think that the high yield market now yields about eight and a half percent, and for those who to the podcast, um, that number may be different, so do check it. Um, if the market is pricing at about seven and a half percent default rates, and it goes back to pricing in what we think is a more realistic default rate of about eight and a half to nine percent, that's a hundred, call it 150 basis points of more default rates with some recovery. So call it 100 basis points of widening with a four-year duration in the high-yield market, that's a negative return of 4%. But there is already a spread cushion or yield cushion of 8.5%. You'll still actually make a positive return in high yield, even if spreads widened by 100 basis points for about 4.5%. In equities, of course, you don't get that spread um, payment to you, and therefore the return is going to be just negative. So it's that cushion effect is quite important. And obviously, the wider high yield spreads go, the bigger the cushion. So 
hopefully that answered your question is that what you will see is using exactly that example spreads will need to one 200 basis points for a zero return in high yield um 300 basis points you get minus four percent so obviously in the as equities go down or if they go down the first downward leg for equities will be negative return for equities but still positive for lower return for high yield the second leg down will be continued greater negative return negative returns for equities and zero return for high yield and it would only be the third stage um, of the quantum where both high yield and equities provide negative returns and this intuitively makes a lot of sense doesn't it because um, equity is just long duration debt it's the bottom of the capital structure and when you see enterprise values of businesses getting impaired, the first thing that gets cut is the most subordinated part of the capital structure, which is equities. The next bit is the most level bits of debt, which is typically high yield. And the last bit is the less, least levered parts of debt, which is often more like investment grade or sometimes loans. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, Alex? no. Well, that's that's exactly sort of the, 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 my thinking when I think about equities. Is equities are that cushion, right? So if, if equities that cushion gets smaller and smaller, then the pressure then sort of filters through the you know through the capital stack. And so that was exactly yeah. what I was looking at. You know, it, it's an interesting piece where where equity is quite high. You know, high yields interesting because it's pricing quite differently to where equities are, and equities are still quite high. But there's there's this real disconnect or mispricing between the equities, which are saying one thing, which are really quite positive um, on the, on the whole, and then on the high yield space, you know, there's still there's still a lot of concern. And so I was just wondering if equities then does pull back, then then the flow on effect to high yield could could uh, start to take the hit. So that was that was yeah you know, yeah, and it, and if you actually look at there are a lot of high yield bonds still trading in the eighties where there is a market capital there is market capitalization values on the equity. I mean, that does, doesn't make sense unless that market capitalization is purely an option. Mm -hmm. So it is it is different ways of valuing it or, or looking at the market. And you have to remember, you know, we debt guys are more miserable than equity guys because just our asset classes, we lend somebody at 100 and we're either going to get it back plus some interest or nothing or we're going to lose everything. With an equity guy, yes, they can lose everything too, but they but at least the math tells you that what you could get back is infinity. And that's why they are more optimistic than we are. Well, I think that's I think that's just a matter of, of who you are, right? You can be over optimistic or you can be realistic and try to really actually, you know, focus on the cash flows. And and ultimately I think equities seem to have moved further and further away from what we were taught at university and what we were taught as part of the CFA program and, you know, discounting cash flows. And, and it seems like we don't seem to have any uh, anchor to that, but at least in the debt side, you know, there, there is a continual focus around business, the structure of the business, the ability of it to pay its debts and the ability of it to generate cash flows. And I think that's one of the things that's really important for, for the superannuation funds, you know, around the world pension funds as well, particularly as more and more people move into the retirement space where they need to provide income um and you know equities are, are looking like they can't do that unless you continue to try and sell them down and create like a, a manufactured cash flow but you know at the end of the day these funds need to generate income um and this is an opportunity so that's that's what I, how i think about the two going hand in hand and, and the importance of both you know in terms of the yes yeah, certainly you know if you um 
the analysis we've done is if you invest in a recession and look the next 12 months outwards, the total return of investing in either fallen angels or the higher parts of high yield outstrip the returns you can get from either equities or from investment grade bonds. Mm. And that's because of this repair. So if we go to the next stage for a second, Alex, and be a bit more positive, um, you know, obviously the first thing that happens is enterprise values start to go up, the high yield bond should become whole. And it's only after the next phase, when we are through the repair cycle and confidence returns, should theoretically that equity cushion grow again. So 12 months out from a recession, um, there is a there is a lot of analysis which you can you can just look up yourselves, which shows that actually the returns from high and fallen angels. You can look at there's a Merrill Lynch index, HOF um, A, um, and you can compare that to the S the S and P or the high yield indices um, and see see how that works. But don't take my word for it. But it's is there much of an analog to the GFC in terms of how those spreads uh, would 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 return? Is that what you're looking at? Yeah, I looked at the GFC. Um, I also looked at um, the dot-com um, crash. And actually, um, one of my clients asked me to go all the way back to the, uh, when, uh, 1988 when high-yield um, indices started. Um, and you can, you can track uh, the U.S. domestic high-yield market back to 88 versus the S&P. And it works you know, through savings and loans, through... Um, Asia and Russia crises, as well as then the dot-com, the GFC, euro crisis, energy crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in some of those, obviously, the, the key is the word there, energy or, or dot-com, there were certain sectors which didn't do as well um, in, in certain of those recovery phases. Um, but broadly so, that, that those numbers do work um, for the GFC, but also a lot of other instances as well. Are there particular also countries that that are probably more attuned to sort of improving and, and sort of coming out of this bad cycle? You know, I, I know the US has got you know, specific rules and regulation in terms of its you know moving through reorganisation and so forth. Are, are there particular countries that you look for when you're you know, moving through the, the high yield space? Um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 both market value and also regulatory reasons. Um, so if you start with me, you mentioned the Chapter 11. The Chapter 11 process is pretty easy to understand. Um, and the majority of distressed investors, you know, have started off with a US background. So what they will look at then is other insolvency regimes which are easy enough to sort of fit, put into a US mindset. So the reorganization of England and Wales, for example, is not dissimilar, um, it's more prescriptive, but actually it's pretty easy to work out. While if you go to somewhere like France, you get to a situation where there is a totally different um, way of doing things under the safeguard regime. So you will typically see um, the first investors coming into the US simply because it's easier um, the cross that there are a lot of issuers in the US and they all follow the same process. You don't need to learn 10 or 15 different types of insolvency law. So the US will typically be the first spot of recovery. Um, And then when those opportunities have gone away, 
there will be more um, focus on Europe and Asia. But again, culturally, there are differences uh, in Europe and Asia versus the US in terms of how the banks regard their relationship with their clients um, and also their relationships with distress funds. Um, so that will also lead to, to a delay. The interesting thing for a bond investor or someone investing in stressed credits rather than restructured credits is that you will see a recovery in US spreads um, in, the, in that stressed market before you see a recovery in European spreads um, for, the, for those reasons. And therefore, if you can be global, you can actually then switch your allocations away from the US into Europe or into Asia to take advantage of similarly rated um, companies or you know companies which look similar in terms of what they do because mm -hmm. i'm not sure ratings are the best way to look at it um with much much wider credit spreads and you've seen that again in all the crises that going into a crisis you really want to be in the us but coming out of it um actually you want to be in europe because um or asia because the opportunities are much much wider so it's quite important to have a pretty global scope what you're looking at mm -hmm. all right i think that's um a fabulous place to to leave it's a really great uh coverage of the market so please uh thank you very much um david for your time thank you alex thank you for joining us all views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus financial this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice